The Rebel Troxel helmet is a statement maker with bold graphics and full ventilation. The lightweight Rebel is a trendsetter's favorite. The fashionable colors and designs cater to riders who like to match their horse's gear by looking great and being comfortably protected. With built-in comfort features like the SureFit Pro System that adjusts the shape of your head, you'll see why this helmet has become a favorite. Check it out at TroxelHelmets.com. Welcome back to another episode of The Ride. My name is Jillian Sinclair, and I'm here with my co-host, Nicole Cherico. Today's guest is Catherine Cope, who is a multiple carded judge and an AQHA and APHA professional horseman. Catherine has judged all over the country in many different breeds and disciplines, but today we want to talk about her experience with judging in Europe. We actually go really far back. She's kind of the reason that my family got into horses so many years ago, and um, I probably honestly wouldn't be working at Horse and Rider if we hadn't met, you hadn't, you know, started my sister and I riding. So um, it's an honor to have you on here. I'm so excited to talk to you. Why don't you kind of start with introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your career and your horse life? Uh, thank you, Jillian. I um, It has been a long time, as we were just saying, probably 25 years since we met. And I have a daughter that's your age. Um, and yeah, I started out actually giving lessons to your oldest sister, Taylor, and then it was Avery and you and Allie were really too little at the time to do lessons. You were probably three or four years old, but, um, that's, that's how we met. And that's how it all started in Melbourne, Florida. Yeah. And you're still, you're in Cocoa, which is right by me, but you travel. I feel like you're probably traveling more than your home <laughs> with how much judging you've been doing. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm in Cocoa Beach and I um, I do travel, but I also have another job. I'm still a high school administrator at Cocoa Beach Junior Senior High School. Um, I decided as a, a horse trainer that was, you know, had been training for a couple of decades that um, I really like the idea of retirement and and uh, health insurance and things like that just because I needed to plan for the future more, I thought. And my family was not a horse family. My husband's an engineer. My daughter played golf. Um, and I really traveled so much at one time that I wasn't spending a lot of time with them. And they did make their wishes known at that point. Then I was restricted to not going anywhere on Thanksgiving, Memorial Day. Like I had to spend at least a couple holidays at home. And you know, major events like to take up those big holidays. So I changed what I was doing as far as the barn goes and started working at school. But I love to judge. And I knew I always wanted to judge. I love the traveling. I love the people, my fellow judges and all the people from the horse show that would hire me. And everywhere I worked, I just, to me, that is the most important part is the relationships. So I continue that. I feel like your uh, situation is very different from a lot of judges that I talk to. Most of them are horse trainers or have some kind of professional career in the horse industry. And obviously you had that, but now as a school teacher, do you find that it's a little more challenging to, to fit your schedules with your school schedule? Or do you find that you're judging more in the summer when you're not working at the school? How does that work? That is a great question. And I, I really keep my job at school. I'm not in the classroom anymore. I'm on the admin team. So I have a lot of different varied duties, but with working for a school district, I have a lot of sick days. I have a lot of holidays that are paid. Um, you know, I do have some of the time in the summer off. I'm not, a, um, I don't have summer off exactly. I have a couple of weeks, um, but my principal allows me to put days together, use my flex time, use my sick days. I also get days off um, that are vacation days. So he lets me put all those things together and make it work. Like this year, um, I was asked to judge the Pinot World. Well, that's 14 days. So I took off one of the days that I was supposed to work 
and traded it in for a vacation week. I mean, I can make it work. I can always make it happen. So to me, that's easier because when you have a barn and you run a barn and you need to be there every day, you really can't go all that much. The horse trainers, I think, are more stymied than I am. I have a lot more flexibility in my schedule without having a barn. True. You don't have a bunch of two-year-olds that are sitting in stalls just building up energy and excitement because you're gone. Absolutely not. And you know, in the last couple of years that I had a barn, I didn't take any twos. They're too much work. I take them when they're three or, um, and, and you know, my biggest forte was always the lessons. And I made my livelihood from lessons for many, many, many decades. Um, and giving lessons is, is a real art. And a lot of horse trainers don't like to do that part of it. Um, I took a lot of kids from an open horse show or a 4-H horse show and gave them the skill that it takes to show at a breed show. And uh, luckily, people would trust me and we would buy horses that they could elevate to the next level. And that is a re it's still a real problem in the horse industry is getting those kids to the next level. And that takes a real talent um, that a lot of horse trainers just, they, they don't like. It's hard. It's hard work to describe to somebody by feel how to accomplish what you're talking about and have them gain that skill so that they can do it for themselves. There's not a lot of people out there that have that um, will or want or talent to do those kind of lessons. But that's that was kind of my niche for a long time. I, I love to hear that because I, like you mentioned, like that's a really big problem in our industry where we're not finding ways to get these people who are not involved in the horse industry to begin with getting them into it because you're right. So many horse trainers, they only want horses in training, you know, that you can go to horse shows. They don't want to teach somebody the very bare basics of, you know, how to pick a horse's foot or, you know, even just where to stand and lead one. And so I, I love hearing that that was a really big part of your career because we need more of it was it always like had you always had that feeling of I love to teach lessons like this did you learn to love it like was that kind of your your career move at the beginning of your horse training career is that you wanted to do that kind of focus you know what it was more of a necessity and that but that's a really good question too I love your questions it was more of a necessity I really didn't I really wasn't the person that started the kids out with picking the hooves and doing the grooming and that. My friend, Sandy Curl, she is a master at that. She takes them when they're tiny, tiny kids, three years old, and she will teach them all those kind of basic things. Mine was kind of the next step. And it was a necessity to be able to teach young riders balance, rhythm, and timing. And without the, now you can't teach feel. I'm sorry about that. You either, that is something you're born with. You either have it or you don't, but you can manage, you can make somebody a good technician. And sometimes that's what you have to do as well, because not everybody has that talent either. Um, but and I could teach them how to, how many steps are in the walk, how many in the trot, how do you count your lope, um, you know, and all the exercises that go with it. Jillian, you know that everybody that started with me went on the lunge line without a bridle because we have to teach the feel of the, of the seat first. And then in order to get people to use their leg, that's the next step there as well. It, it's hard, especially someone who's never understood that you ride the rear end of the horse into the front end, not vice versa. So it, these are the, these are, this is the hard work that takes time and people have to be willing to do and these type of lessons, but they're invaluable because this is how you make real riders. Without this, you don't have anything. You can't do anything else. Definitely. That's so true. And that's something that I think Avery, my sister, has really, I never really thought about that, but I feel like that's something she got from you. Everything you were just saying, I hear her say all the time <laughs> and she loves lessening and she really has kind of made that a core of her business, even though she, you know, trains and everything, but she, she really does the love, the lessening part. So, and it's such an important part of getting people just in the industry and, and in different parts of it and everything. So how did you, you know, you were lessening and going to shows and everything like that. How did you go from there to judging and becoming, I mean, you're carded in, 
I think every association that you could possibly be there's <laughs> it's a pretty long well, list I, I did and I I rode I showed I trained I gave lessons for a long time but my friends would always ask me to come and judge their horse shows open horse shows and I judged my first really big open horse show I think I was 17 and it was in Linden Washington and this is in the late mid late 70s 1970s the horse shows were huge then I mean it's hard for anybody to imagine right now, but in those days, horse shows were just huge. And um, I, this friend asked me to come and do it. I said, oh my gosh, I can't judge that show. That's a huge show. She goes, oh yeah, you can, you can do it, come on. So I said, okay, well, I'll try. So they actually flew me there and I judged this open horse show and everybody said I, I did well. So I thought, well, God, that was kind of fun. Maybe I'll keep trying that. Then I moved, I, mo I got married, moved all the way across the country. And then I was in Florida and um, I went back and met some horse people, of course, as you always do. And then Florida had amazingly a, a huge circuit of open horse shows at that time. Um, there were the four P's, Plantation, Posse, uh, Parkland, um, and something else down in Miami. And um, there was a lady down there. Her name was Gloria Watt. And uh, her son, Joe and Dawn, his wife, Dawn, still live in South Florida. Their daughter, Mackenzie Watt, is now a trainer. They show up loose. But Gloria Watt would hire me for all of those shows. And at the time, Jillian, I was um, training you guys. But these would be like day events where you could drive to the horse show a couple of hours, judge the horse show, and come home. Um, so Gloria one time asked me after I judged a couple of horse shows for, her, she said, well, why don't you have any cards? And I said, well, what are you talking about? What's a card? I didn't even know. So she explained it to me that you had to go to the color breed Congress and you start and you apply with this. She said, listen, if you fill out an application, I'll sign it for you. Well, I said, okay, I'll do that. So that's actually how I got into it. I, um, what was the first one I applied for? I think in those days, if you got some of the lesser cards, then you would graduate to the bigger cards. So I did Pinto, Buckskin, POA, and those type of things. Um, and that, if you get carded in that, then you get to the educational seminar um, at the Color Breed um, seminar for judges. And that's when you first start to get some real education. So um, that that's how I started. And then I built cards after that I got my paint card I got my NSBA card which um, I, I love all my I still love all my cards the last one I got was my quarter horse card and that one took more time and more effort it's a little bit more of an exclusive club not better not worse just different um, and and I've I've been judging ever since so how did you go from judging you know from here breed shows over here how did you get started going over to europe that's something that i've always been just like so jealous of of and envious of i think it's so cool being able to participate in in the horse industry over there well you know you have to be asked to go and um at the time the first time i went i think it was in 2007 and um apha the director of judges apha at the time asked me to go um, they knew that I had given lessons, that I was, you know, good at that. And in those days, the people were just so hungry for knowledge in all those the clubs and the charters they had started that um, they, they and, uh, you know, it was hard to get, they had to afford to have a judge come over. In those days, APHA would help fund some of that cost, and, and they still do. Um, our breed associations still help with USLGE trips and things like that. Um, but I went over and part of the horse shows usually is that you do a clinic. Um, they really like the ride, the pattern clinics because they're not sure. Now you, you understand they're trying to do patterns and courses and things that are not in their language either. So um, I went over and I gave a clinic and I judged the horse show. And then um, APHA asked me to go to Germany and I did that. And then they asked me to go to France and I did that. Um, and each show had a clinic with it. And once the Europeans know you, then they'll start asking you to come. So I've been fortunate enough to judge some of the biggest events in Europe. Um, I judged Traviato Cavalli in Milan, Italy, and I've judged Equita Lyon in Lyon, France. And I judged the European Championship in Aachen, Germany. Um, 
and um, and other various horse shows around too. But but you get known for doing that, and then they'll they ask you to come. That's a really cool. I, I had heard before that a lot of them will hold clinics before the actual event to do that kind of ride the pattern style. Um, did you have translators? I mean, especially in, in like you said, these are patterns that are not in their language. Like, did you did you have somebody? Do they provide you with somebody to kind of help translate that stuff? Yes, they sure do. You always have a translator with you. And I feel so sorry for my translators because I talk so much. Um, we just did um, the new generation show in the clinic in Prague, and I had a wonderful translator, Yitka, and she also is a, the only um, carded judge, European judge in the Czech Republic. So, and she was wonderful and she helped me immensely that day, but you always have a translator. Um, and I always ha have everybody ask me a question um, and, and we do it that way. Now the Europeans, um, as far as their scribes and everything, they, they were ahead of us for a long time. The scribes are very precise. They're very well-trained. They watch the videos. They love to do it. And they usually have some English. Um, it may be limited, but I can always use the universal language, finger pointing, um, and, and I've never had a problem. Are you seeing that the numbers are getting larger in Europe, especially for the all-around stuff? You know, I, I'm in the reigning world anymore. I used to, I came from the all-around, but you know, in the reigning, there is quite a bit of European competitions and, and people winning world equestrian games and, and people flying in for, you know, big events like the run for a million. And, um, but, you know, the all around is not as you don't hear as much about it in Europe. Is it, is it getting larger? Is it building a, a larger fan base over there? You know, reigning has been big in Europe for a long, long time. And um as, I mean, they just have fantastic reigning events. And yes, a lot of those people buy fabulous horses and they, they bring them to the States and show. The breed shows are a little bit different. Um, there is a big following for those, but in certain countries, it's different breeds. Like in, in the Czech Republic, they have 3,000 quarter horses there, but they, nobody shows quarter horses. They all show paints. And they, they, it's about the people, it's about who puts on the horse shows. You know, the gal that does the shows over there for paints draws a Koza Boca um, she, and Lenka Rolova, those girls that run a huge paint horse show. They also have the quarter horse classes, the Appaloosa classes in with that, but they don't have any leadership there in that country for the quarter horse shows. Now, if you're going to go to Germany though, or, or Italy, now you're going to have big quarter horse shows because of who they have good leadership there for their clubs. And so that's important too, is who's running the show. Um, I know in Prague, they also told me that, that um, a lot of those people couldn't really afford to buy the quarter horses that they would need to show to go to a different country. They aren't quite at that level. They find the paints much more affordable and the Appaloosas. So that's really where they are. I think that income um, kind of drives some of that as well, and popularity in different breeds in different countries. So interesting. I never really thought about how the the different breeds and things work. It's kind of similar to over here, you know, each state club, you know, if you don't have a, a good state club, then their shows are going to be either non-existent or small. And, and so it all comes down to who's running the shows. That's, that's super interesting. I never thought about that on a European level. Um, so what about the the quality of the horses? I've kind of always heard that they're like a few years behind us when it comes to like, I don't know, trends and fashion and horse quality and things like that. Is that true or what is it? What is that really like? I would say that's pretty accurate, Jillian, because there, it, there used to be a huge gap. The first time I went and did a clinic in France, I had to take a bit out of a horse's mouth that was in backwards. So and this is this is years ago, but people just didn't know. And now they are maybe just a couple of years behind us. They really, they pay attention, they study, they watch our online horse shows. Um, you know, they can watch the world show and see what's going on. And they've learned so much about movement and um, 
what what the what showing is really all about. So to say that they're just a couple of years behind, maybe in style and fashion and that kind of thing, but you know, they the Europeans just they love showing, they love their horses. And they they treat their horses so well. I mean, those horses are are members of their family. And in Europe, while they do have horse trainers, most of the people do it on their own. And so it might take them longer, it might be harder, but when they accomplish something, it means so much more to them because they've made it happen. You know, um, they really, they're not that far behind us. Um, the people that can afford to do kind of what we do in the States, they come over to the States and, and ride and show with trainers. You know, um, several of the European judges, you know, they went and trained, um, with Charlie and Jason at High Point. Um, they're very educated horse trainers, Nico Perrin, Matteo Sala in Italy, um, Francesco Bossi. These are fabulous horsemen, but they 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 don't reach everybody in Europe because people just aren't at that level with a horse trainer yet. Some of them are from very remote places and they, they have to be a do-it-yourselfer. So that's very alive and well in Europe. I also think that with you know, technology and the internet and, you know, all of this, it, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to know what the trends are and, and to stay up to date on, on that, even though we are, you know, across the ocean from each other is we have, you know, stuff like horse and rider on demand, our video platform and, you know, the websites and everybody's on Instagram and, and it, so it is, it's a lot easier to keep up with what those trends are going to be or, or what they're becoming. And, and uh, if that's important to you, then you can, you know, keep up with that. But uh, you're right. There's so many fantastic European riders. I mean, like I said, I've been in the reigning world. So there's a million fantastic European riders and they are wonderful to work with. Um, but in the in the all around stuff, I remember when I would help my friend Robin Fritt out, like he would have European riders come before the world show or before the youth world cup that AQHA puts on and, and do clinics. And these kids were some of like, you know, I, I want to say they're such great horsemen and I don't know if it's just because they were good horsemen or because they were so honored for the opportunity that they took in every second that they had working with someone like Robin and, and not taking for granted, you know, and, and it's, kind of goes back to what you were saying where these people do it on their own and when they do it it's really important to them and, and and to be able to accomplish that so I just I have so much respect for them that when they come over here and they have you know I I love talking with them and working with those you know riders you know that's absolutely the truth it they do they have such a sense of honor when their country chooses them to represent them in something like the Youth World Games or, or anything like that. And the try is there. They, um, and, and when you watch their horse shows, um, you know, even awarding them at the end of a class is different. If it's a show, let's say it's a European championship for a breed and um, a, somebody from Germany is first and France is second and Italy is third, there is a show about that. They have them line up. The three, it's like they're on a podium. They have the neck ribbons. They play the, the country's national anthem when they're awarded. There's a deep sense of pride in Europe about representing their country in the horse world. And I think that's where that comes from. They're, they're so hungry for knowledge. They love it when they get a clinic. They, they ask questions. They participate. They work hard. Um, and, and it's just a love for, for the horse. That was something that I noticed, which is, it's a little bit of a different situation, but when I was down working in Wellington um, at, for dressage and the hunter jumper, and that with riders from different countries, just how, how much pride that they had for their country. And, and it was kind of different than what I was used to, where it's, it's almost like a game for yourself not for you know you're not really representing anyone else when you're competing at a horse show so that was kind of a cool thing for me to to see was all the riders coming together from different countries and with you know the national anthem and the the flags and everything it was a really cool part of the horse industry that I had never experienced before so when you're judging in in a European show is there anything different that you are looking for when you're judging than you would in 
at an American show, or is it just it's the same rule book, the same everything? Like you're you're you would judge it the same as you would as a show over here. You absolutely do, because you're still judging for your association by that association's rule book. It would be like in your reigning if you said, well, I'm going to Europe, so I'm not going to judge them so hard. We don't do that. The rule book is the rule book. The class is the class. And even if the scores are a little bit lower, maybe in some cases, um, it's it still works out because that's what our scoring systems are for. So we look for exactly the same thing. We run the show exactly the same way. Um, no difference. Now, one other thing I will point out is um, while they do they do have a love for their horses and their country and love to represent their country, another thing that they've been ahead of us on is participating in NSBA classes. The Europeans, the NSBA has been present in Europe for a while as well, and those are the biggest classes at the horse show. If you have a horse show that is quarter, app, paint, and it, there's NSBA classes, those classes are the biggest class at the horse show. And they, the Europeans love to show together because the classes are bigger. So um, NSBA is also uh, predominant there and, and has, uh, you know, even I think in Sweden, I judged an NSBA championship one time in Sweden. Um, the people love it. They love it to show together too some of the time. I think that's what makes NSBA so special is that, you know, you don't really get that in the in the breed shows where you can compete against paint riders versus appy riders versus quarter horse riders. And I might be a little biased because I came from Diane Epper's barn. So I was around when they did the start of the NSBA world and all of that and seeing that come to what it is today is really cool. But uh, I didn't realize that it was so big in Europe. And that's that makes me so excited to hear. And And I think that's almost the same here in the States though, is I know so many people who just love the NSBA World Show and, and those events. And it's for that reason is because you can come together and ride with people that you wouldn't necessarily see at the quarter horse shows. Well, that's one of the reasons I think the NSBA is just um, really gonna rocket ship here because they're inclusive. Um, I was lucky enough to judge the first um, championship show at WEC last year um, in the overfence division and sit with USCF judges. And what a wonderful time that was judging that show. And I even got to learn a lot from, from sitting there and judging the way that USCF judges um, do it. You know, they, they converse a little bit and that's allowed. Doesn't change their card often, but, but over fence judges, they are allowed to say something. So, and I, and I felt that was so refreshing, you know, when we're so a lot of times restricted. Um, I'll be back there this year again, judging a different division. But NSBA card, I am a category one judge and I've always been very proud of that. It is one of my favorite cards. I just, I love the association. I think Stephanie Lynn is great. And I'm a big Diane Eppers fan too. She was um, a champion of mine for a while and, um, and I appreciate her very much as well. She was tough on me. I actually was in Brad and Valerie's side of the barn, but she was always there and she made sure that I grew up right. <laughs> Yes, that's great. And I've judged, I judged the paint world one year with Brad Kearns and I have a lot of respect for him too. He's a great horseman. We love Brad. He was on the podcast not too long ago. Um, but that's really cool about the USEF. I didn't realize that the judges can converse with each other. Uh, so is this like, while the class is going on, do they have to wait until they've already signed their cards and then they can talk about it or they can, they can kind of look at each other and be like, was that a penalty? Was that okay, what kind of, what are they talking about? Well, conversing is always done after the class. And if you have a zero or if there was something major there, now uh, breed show judges can also um, ask about that too. If there's a major penalty, you do get to discuss as long as your ring stewards are present. So it's along the same lines. They just, um, they, they, they talk about it a little differently. But um, I just learned so much by listening to how they described some of what the horses did over the fences. That's very cool. Um, yeah. It's a great system and I think it's better for the exhibitors too. If we all know what we were looking at or we agree that we saw something or didn't see something, you know, you, you never wanna be a person that thinks that they're on course when they're not. Uh, so, so those big, big major penalties or disqualifications, you need to be on the same page, I, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, you know, um, 
the all around stuff, especially the pattern stuff like showmanship and horsemanship, they're transitioning over to more of a, you know, scored event. When I was riding as a youth kid, you know, I could be first place and I could be last place and nobody would tell me why. Uh, there was no rhyme or reason. It was they didn't like your style. They caught maybe you did something that you shouldn't have and the other judge didn't, whatever. But with the uh, we've transitioned over to a scoring system for the showmanship and the horsemanship. And um, obviously the trail and the Western riding have always had that and the reining. And, um, but I think that's really helped us understand why judges are scoring us the way that we are. Have you found that that's made your job a little easier having that scoring system and being able to explain where you got your decision from well you know i've always had a scoring system um when i first started judging open shows and this is a long time ago now girls but we didn't have score sheets and i could not figure out how anybody was coming up with a trail score when they had no sheet they'd say oh well that looked like about a 76 and i thought well i can't do that in my head there's no way so I made a score sheet by hand, put little boxes there. And this is the in the days when each obstacle was scored on a zero to 10 point basis. So um, I, I made my own in the early days. Now we've gone through all kinds of different scoring systems. There was the zero to 20 days when you would, you know, have kind of an area and put that in. I would always make a note. So I had something, but you're right. And there were judges that didn't pay those that kind of attention to those or, you know, say anybody can miss something too, guys. You you look down to write one little thing down and, and something can happen and you'll miss it. Now, everything is a scored event, except for pleasure and under saddle, just about. And it's a huge job now for our scribes. Um, the scribe job is now just a, almost as important. You can't use some of these systems without a scribe. So um, in Europe, the scribes are very good. They train, they watch the videos, you know. Uh, we do still end up at horse shows sometimes, and this happens in the States too, where you're not provided with a scribe. Um, then I tell people, okay, I can do it because I can do anything. I can use any scoring system that you want me to learn. I've learned new ones every year, every couple of years for a long time now, but I will be able to watch about half your run. Because if I have to score this with 10 maneuvers, then I, I, I'm constantly going to be looking at this sheet. So um, I, I love the scoring systems. I always did it that way. I, my number always stood for itself. I didn't need to adjust it. The one thing I think is different now is you don't really keep a feel for your class anymore. And Charlene Carter and I have talked about this a lot, but you know, we used to run our own score sheet and you can see if you had one maybe at a 75 and one was 74 and a half, but you really didn't like that one better. You could make an adjustment there now, and especially using the iPad system, your number is your number and that's it. And you don't have a feel for, you know, if you have two that were really high, and the first one, you're just not, it's, it's, it's just not that feel for the class anymore, which it's exhibitor driven. This is what the exhibitors have asked us for. So this, this is now what we have for me. I'm fine with it. Um, and let's say tomorrow that AQHA and APHA change the scoring system again, which they're going to tweak it again this year a little bit. We just learned the new one. I, I don't even worry about it. I just do what I'm told and because that's our system. So it is. Yeah, I, um, I I get what you're saying, where like you had somebody that was really close together and but maybe one had a, a nice overall presentation that was just this much better that you were like, that's my winner. But now it doesn't matter because you've scored them. It is what it is. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if, if you personally thought like, OK, they were pretty close in their pattern, but this one just had something a little special about their presentation or whatever it might be. And um, but right. And right you, you can adjust your F and E for that. Okay. If you get down and they say, well, look, these two are really close or these are tied. Um, and if you did like that presentation just a little bit better, and that's another great question, Nicole, I'm glad you asked that one too, because that's where I would adjust that is in my F and E. Okay. That's great. Um, but you were talking about the scribes and how important they are. Um, I would imagine I, you know, I've scribed. I am not a good scribe. I'm not going to pretend like I, it is my passion in life, but I have learned so much scribing and, and you really learn that like, you know, 
sitting on the outside of the arena is all fun and dandy and you can you can judge and you can complain about how the judges are scoring and this and that but when you sit in the middle of that arena it's very different and i think a lot of people could learn from scribing and sitting with a judge and seeing their perspective and what they're doing it totally is and some of my um, mid-level clinics that is what i have everybody do they come and sit with me and scribe while somebody does a trail go. Uh, matter of fact, I did one at Dubin Farms one time. Avery wrote in that one. And um, we did have everybody come and sit and everybody had a score sheet. And, you know, a lot of people, even if they ride and show, they really don't know what the judge is looking for, the way we have to score that class and how big a penalty something is, how many points that is, if you can recover from it or not. Because, you know, picking up a three is different than picking up a penalty one and how to stay out of the penalty box. So it is, that is such a great education for people to know really what we have to do because we don't have liberty anymore. We, we can evaluate the quality, but we have to stick to what those penalties are. Well, and I think even just like the idea of like, you can plus one and a half a maneuver, but then still have a minus half penalty in there or something or plus one maneuver and then minus half, whatever. You can, and, and I actually like to do that because if I even have just a small little tick, but let's say that that big loping fan had eight poles in it and I had one little tick, but that horse was beautiful across the top of the rest of it, I might have a penalty half and a plus half. And I can still do that because I would have had it a plus one had maybe I not had that tick. So I'm going to reduce it a little bit, but I'm still going to give it credit because it was good. Yeah. That's something that one of my favorite things to do at a after a show is going, if you can, going and looking at the score sheets. I feel like it tells you so much that you didn't really realize, like before when you were competing, and then you go look at it, and it's like, oh, that makes sense of why I was, you know, this place because I did this, this, and this. Like I just, I love, I Avery will make everyone go up and like take a picture of their scorecards and send it to her, so then she goes over it with everyone, and um, I just. I think it's great that shows are starting to let exhibitors see those because I think it's really important and, and it's such a, a big part of the, you know, the, the show now. It's it's pretty much all of it. How have you, do you like the iPad digital scoring as like moving away from paper or is that because, is that been a difficult transition? No, I love it. I've always been very techie. Um, when I was in the classroom at school, I was a technology teacher, so none of that's ever bothered me. Um, I love the speed of it with the, the scores that go right in and you have the results immediately. It also is easier on the scribes when they're not sitting. Um, it, it really, I think it eases it up. So I like all the different scoring systems there. Uh, or the iPad software systems, I should say. I know um, a couple of our different horse show um, management companies use different ones, um, but they all seem to get the job done. And um, again, those those scoring systems, Jillian, as you were talking about going back and looking at what where you had penalties or where you were did well, um, that should tell the story. That score sheet should tell the story of your run and it should accurately depict why that number was arrived at and what happened throughout the go. Definitely. Do you, are you finding that a lot of shows are putting those out? I know like at the Pinto World, they a few years ago started putting those online for everyone to see and, and everyone has loved being able to see those at the World Show. Have you found that other associations and shows are giving those out more? Well, each breed association has their rules about turning in score sheets. In AQHA, you turn in all your score sheets. The Paint Horse Association only requires that we turn in the trail, the Western riding, the lunge line, and something else. But I turn all mine in anyway. Um, I'm just used to it. I don't think that it's beneficial to not let people see what the scores were. I'm not sure why we ever hid them from anyone in the first place. I, you know, up until even recently, I'd say in the last 10 years, judges weren't required to use a score sheet. 
So all those things keep evolving and changing. Well, it's true. Um, they keep evolving and changing. And, and now, um, even in some associations, we have suggested score sheets, not required. Or you have a variety. Let's say, for instance, in the Appaloosa Horse Club, you have a couple of different hunter enhanced score sheets that you're allowed to choose from which one that you want to use or not. So each association has their own rules about their score sheets. Um, I'm a big fan of just turning them in. I'm just used to it. I turn all mine in. Well, I think as an exhibitor, um, I that's how you learn, right? I mean, like, yes, you have horse trainers and you can watch videos. But at, at the end of the day, knowing what the judge was thinking and why they scored you the way that they did is is the best way that you can learn from that experience. So yeah, I'm I'm all for the score sheets and I love and I appreciate when judges do turn those score sheets in, even if they are not required to. Because uh, you're right, even 12, I don't know. My, so my last world show was in 2011 and those score sheets, I didn't get a score sheet for my showmanship finals pattern. Right. I never knew how I did. And, and you know, those days are gone. Yeah, and, and yeah. I'm I'm so glad because there were so many times where I did not know why I scored a way, a way I did where I was first on one card and I was 13th on another and I was, you know, here and now it's like, you can kind of know, and I just, I appreciate it. But also again, I've been living in the reigning world where everything's scored and, and everybody loves scores in the reigning and they love looking at score sheets. So now I'm just very into it. Yeah. And they absolutely do. And that method, their method has been tried and true for decades and um, while it wouldn't work for every class, they, they really set the industry standard for what, what we need to be doing in our, in our scoring systems. They really did. Um, and like I said, every time we get a new score sheet or they tweak a system, um, the judge is required to go ahead and learn that. Um, and it really, um, I, I embrace it because I just think it needs to be better um, and what we were doing with the old zero to 20, why you were first on one card and you got the gate on the other, my word, that would ruin a horse show. So that is what sparked all of this evolution in score sheets was exactly what you described as to not knowing why you weren't used well. This has all been exhibitor driven and, and rightly so. Well, let's talk about, you've mentioned quite a few times the educational side of it. Um, AQHA and APHA, and I'm sure several other breed associations all have educational seminars for their judges. Every year they go over video and talk about learning the new score sheets and, and what they're looking for, what you should be penalizing, what you should be, you know, uh, scoring. And, and can you kind of talk about that? Because I know a lot of people who have said that's been really educational too is just sitting in there in those kind of situations and in classrooms essentially and learning that way right well they each association does have their requirement for judges on how they're going to recertify um for aqha we do it every year for the other associations we do it we have to go once every three years um but now also you can purchase aqhu and Horse IQ from APHA, and that's open to anybody who wants to purchase the exhibitor side of that, um, and that's a great educational tool as well. I agree. There are so many different platforms now, and, and I've scribed a few times, and probably one of the most stressful jobs I've ever had, <laughs> um, but I've learned so much. I don't think I was not expecting that going into it, and then I, I it's the most that I've ever learned from in a very short amount of time. Um, but I watched the, it was probably the Horse IQ stuff, um, you know, their video series and um, it was super helpful. And I think it's great that associations and, and like us, we have our on-demand platform are putting that out there for the exhibitors to learn. So it's not just that something that judges know and we don't understand, you know, it, it helps us all be kind of on the same, the same page and the same level of understanding of what they're expecting from us. I think that's super important. Right, and all of this education and communication has come such a long way. When I first started showing and first started training horses back in the Jurassic era, nobody would tell you anything. A guy that had a good horse, you know, I'd go up and ask them like, how do you do that? Nobody would say anything. That was their secret. 
they probably didn't even know what they were doing. But back in those days, there was no, we didn't, we didn't cooperate. Nobody helped each other. Um, but that has done a complete 180. And now there's all this out here. A lot of trainers work together. Some people have multiple trainers, a trainer for showmanship, a trainer for the EC. And, and we see this, we see all this cooperation now. It certainly didn't start out that way, guys. But as horses got better and training got better and shows got better and we, we've seen all this elevate, you know, so this is why we need to have all this education out here. And the breed associations, I think, have stepped up to the plate and provided it for their exhibitors. And that's where we're at now. I would even say the trainers are, are going to other trainers to get help. You know, I was talking to somebody at the Run for a Million and they live here in Colorado and they do very well in the show pen, but they were like, yeah, I'm taking a load of horses to Arizona so I can ride with so-and-so for a week because I want to learn how they stop their horses and, and get this out of them or whatever it is. And and yeah, you're right. I, I love the, yeah. the communication, the education. Uh, people, you know, every time Jillian and I contact somebody to do, whether it's a training piece or how you keep your horses healthy and, and ready for the show pen, you know, they're also willing to share that knowledge with us. And it, it isn't some big secret that they're trying to keep hidden from the world. Right. We've come a long way in that aspect. Now the, the sharing of information is, is worldwide. And it, and a lot of it is the online, the technology that we have now we have so much more access to it, but you're right. If I need help with something, um, you know, we did it on a on a, a little smaller level. A lo the trainers in Florida, anyway. When I had a training barn, um, I went down to Dubin Farms, and we would go down there and ride. And we started doing that. And this is 20 years ago, but it's at a whole new level now as well. You know, they do. They load up the horses and go to somebody else's barn, and they figure it out. And nobody's ashamed to do that anymore. Definitely, and I think as a rider and an exhibitor, you know, I'm kind of in a different situation since my sister is my horse trainer, but she has always encouraged me and everyone else in her barn to go and ride with whoever you can. You know, if you want to take a lesson with another horse trainer, like that's not offensive. That's a just another way to learn. And, and you know, everyone has a different way of doing things and, and learning from everyone is, you know, you should take advantage of that opportunity. So that's something that I've always tried to do is if I have the chance to ride with someone and learn from them that I will. And that's something that I really love about this job is that I get to talk to trainers of all different disciplines and everything and, and learn from them and then write about it and help other people learn um, about it. And it's just I've been such a cool part of the job is, is getting to know how other trainers work and, and things that they do. And I've learned a lot just from doing that for myself for writing. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely a different part of the industry now, but I'm really glad that it's kind of expanding and becoming such an important part of it. And I agree with that, too. And I would say, you know, I don't think that people are quite as possessive over their clients or customers as maybe they used to be. It's more and I know that this will help you. So, yeah, let's go do this. Um, but it, it, it probably started back in the day when, you know, somebody had to have that many horses in the barn and give that many lessons in order to make the, the least payment and pay the power bill. So there, there's probably still that level of it too. Um, but, you know, we, we've elevated so much. And, and um, when you have a trainer that's willing to take a load of horses down to another trainer to get help, you're, you're competing at the highest level. And, and it takes, it does take a village there as well. I think clinics too have been a really big, um, very beneficial to a lot of people and, and especially those who maybe don't get that trainer 24 seven, you know, that they have to drive in for lessons or, or what it might be, but yeah, the clinics and, and the horse trainers that are willing to do those clinics. Um, I know the people who, who participate in those are so thankful for those horse trainers that take time out of their busy schedule, whether it's because they're horse showing, training, judging all three, you know, taking time to fly to another part of the country or, or in your case, the world where you're going to all these different countries and, you know, providing that knowledge to people and, and sharing that knowledge, even though they're not technically your customers and you're not getting that that training bill from them every month. It's it's really great. And I, I love the clinic atmosphere. And 
I've learned a lot from clinics, even though I've always had access to horse trainers. I've learned so much by leaving my barn and going and learning from someone else because I, you know, at the end of the day, we're all reinventing the wheel, right? Like we all want the same thing, but the way that people say it, sometimes it just makes sense when somebody else says it a different way or, or they just describe it a different way. Yeah, and that is absolutely true as well. And I always liked giving the clinics and the group lessons, um, especially when I stopped training, because then I can still judge those people. I don't have a um, client relationship with them. Um, and so it just opened it up that I wouldn't have to be wary of that. Um, I think ethically for me, um, I don't want to judge anybody that I'm doing business with. And this way for me, I don't do business with anybody. So I can judge anybody that comes into the pen and um, I don't owe anybody anything. And I, I, I never did. I never felt that way anyway. I would always, you know, I know what the right thing is. All of our judges know what the right thing is. I think maybe we should trust them a little bit more with that. Um, but it kept me out of having to have any conflicts. So I, I would rather do it that way. Yeah. Well, and as much as you're judging that, that, I could see how that could become an issue. <laughs> right. Important because what would I judge in Florida? Nothing. Right. And I'm very needed in Florida, you know. So, um, so that that always it worked out in my favor not to have a barn full of customers and horses, you know. Plus, you guys, you know, I was a one man show, and I always trained myself. I didn't have any help. I couldn't hire anybody that would work um, like that. I mean, I know a lot of people team up now, but we just never had that. We couldn't even get people to clean stalls. So um, I was always a one-man show, and I worked really, really hard for a lot, a lot of years, and um, and I was tired. And I, to be honest with you, I missed some of my good horses. I still have all of my great people that I still love, so I don't miss any of that. I don't miss any of that hard work. I don't miss Christmas morning four o'clock and going out to the barn and doing that before I could come home and watch my daughter open her gifts. I, I really don't. So I'm still involved in the industry. I just do it in a little bit different way. Well, we so appreciated you coming on here and talking more about your perspective, because I think you're probably the first person who's full focus in the horse industry right now is the judging and the, and, you know, going overseas and, and teaching people more about our industry and and it's been really great to talk with you and and learn more about that side of the industry in case somebody is interested in kind of venturing into that path well that's great i sure appreciate the opportunity girls i've loved uh, meeting you nicole and talking with you again jillian tuning into the ride podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts follow horse and rider magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com if you guys have any questions or comments please be sure to hit us up at horse and rider at equine we want to hear from you guys and if you like what you're listening to be sure to leave us a review on itunes